and welcome back to the Impact Fashion Podcast. I'm Chidabem. Thank you for joining me for another week. This week on the podcast, I have Nkwa Omuka, founder of Nigerian-based fashion brand Nkwa, sharing her experiences around building a fashion brand using textile waste. Nkwa and I talked about Dakala. It's a new textile that she's developed using waste. She talks us through the process of actually coming to that textile and also her plans for the future. She also talks to me about her work to preserve dyeing artisanal crafts in Nigeria and embedding sustainability intentionally into her brand. I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Before I go, just a weekly reminder to subscribe and rate the podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Here's my conversation with Nkwa. Hi Nkwa. I'm lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about like how you got started in fashion. I've always been in fashion because when I was young, my mother taught me how to sew. And I had so like I think I had up to 20 dolls. And I used to use the scraps of her cutting table to make clothes for them. So that was my sort of informal introduction to fashion. As I got older, I just continued. I used to make clothes for myself and then for my friends. I didn't go to any fashion college, but I did a couple of short courses. In Nigeria at the time, I wasn't allowed to go to fashion school. I had to get a degree. And so I studied psychology, which I love. And then I left for the UK. It just kind of, it was just organic. It just happened. I started making clothes and selling at Portobello Road Market. And from there, I got one stockist. In 2007, I actually started the brand as a proper business. There was an organization for emerging designers. It's called Fashion Capital. I think it's still there in England. And they had a boutique. So they allowed the members, you know, all the emerging designers to sell in there. And from there, ASOS came in and picked a few of the designers. And I actually was the first African brand to sell on the main site. And yeah, and from there, it just sort of spiraled on. Probably around 2013, 2014, I started my move back to Nigeria. So I was sort of shuttling between. Any time I came back to Nigeria, I would gravitate towards the craft markets. And I just found it so fascinating to see all of these beautiful handmade pieces. Um, and I got to talk to quite a lot of the artisans and found out that so many of them were the last in the line of craft. So it kind of set me on a new journey. I relaunched my brand as an artisanal, sustainable brand in 2012. What was different this time around? This time, it sort of became more intentional, more experimental, more innovative, because I had I had come I had come back to Nigeria. I found that a lot of the crafts were dying. The handicraft, the, the practitioners, were the last in the line of crafts. But there was also another thing I noticed was this heaps and heaps and heaps of textile waste because we have a culture of, um, you know, like you take your clothes to the tailor. So we have a, a seamstress tailoring this small designer culture here. And so there's lots of waste everywhere. And for me, I just felt there had to be a way 
to connect the two. So how could I preserve these craft skills that were dying? But at the same time, how could I reduce waste? And I figured that if we use the textile waste as a resource, then it bridged, it would bridge the gap. And um, so, yeah, that was, that's how it became different. And I started working a lot more with artisans and using local fabrics, local materials. And so, yeah, it became a, a much more intentionally uh, sustainable brand at the mm. time. How do you approach sourcing those textile materials? So whether it's the secondhand pieces mm -hmm. or the kind of offcuts from the, like tailors and stuff. Well, the secondhand pieces is easy. I mean, every town has a market, secondhand market. Um, so there, there's a great one here in Abuja that opens on Tuesdays. So I go there, buy as much as we need. That will last us for a long time. Um, so that's where we source our used jeans and other clothing, but mostly I use denim. And then the offcuts, because I actually, I have a label myself, I have a diffusion range, which is called Import Essentials. We use dead stock, we use end of line fabric. So we have lots of pieces cut off from that. So we collect that. And then recently we've started growing even bigger. And I've started this project called Weaving Waste into Wealth. Mm -hmm. So currently I'm working with 10 women in an IDP camp and I'm teaching them how to make rugs and bags and things using waste. So we started a bigger collection process now. There are markets that have a lot of tailors in. So at the end of the day, when they just throw all the rubbish in the aisles, going to be picked up the next morning we just get someone we have a couple of people who go with sacks and pack up all the pieces so that's how we sort our pieces right now back to experimenting I had lots of denim bits and bits and bits of denim and I was like what, what can we do with this I didn't want to just patchwork it because you know I, I felt like it was really time to use all of this waste and all of this um, secondhand clothing to make a new, like a new African textile. I think it was just time that we need to innovate, bring something new. Because we have a lot of wovens, we have um, the tie-dyes, we have fabric made from raffia, but there wasn't anything that was being made from waste, which I feel is like a, a, a modern problem. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also a resource, it's there. So why don't we use it to do something new? So I started to strip denim and stitch it back in an interesting way. And the first piece I made, the first piece of fabric I made was, it just looked like our woven textiles. And my husband was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You need to give it a name. So the, so it looks like Ashoke. So the first name we came up with was, or he came up with was Denshoke. And I was like, Maybe not. Um, <laughs> I didn't quite like that. So because it looked like woven fabric uh, and the weavers were probably the most recognizable group of textile craftsmen, mm -hmm. I thought I, I would like something that would be a tribute to them. And so I started to research, I was looking at all sorts of names for Ashoke, like the looms, the everything. And I came across this article that said, the sound of the loom, it goes sakalasi, sakalasa. So I like that sakala. I thought, wow, 
but then it sounded like sackcloth. So I thought, hmm, take off the S and replace it with a D, which is for the denim. And I got Zakala cloth. So that's how that came about. And it's, it's just continued. And I've, I keep adding new dimensions to Dakala cloth, which for me, it just symbolizes anything, any kind of textile that I make with waste or that is made with waste. And so, yeah, so that's where we are now. I've got the original Dakala cloth. I've got Dakala solar is where we strip pieces and make them into panels and sew them onto um, mesh fabric. So it does look like solar panels and, and that's really what it's, it's supposed to represent because in Africa, we've got sun in abundance. Why do we have problems with power? You know, the infrastructure here in Nigeria, the power is a big problem. And if we could solve that with the sun, that would be fantastic. And then we have the color strings, which we sort of strip the fabric, turn it into yarn, braid it into strings, and we make capes and dresses and all sorts of interesting things with it. And our newest Dakala cloth, which we are now weaving the waist. So we've got like traditional looms and we've got some more modern looms. And we call this Dakala web because it's woven. And we're sort of looking at what the spider does, how the spider weaves its web. You know, it just weaves exactly what it needs. It doesn't waste anything. So it's, it's a great, um, I just thought it was really an interesting um, an interesting way for us to weave and so we named it the color web in one of your interviews you talked about the the presence of stories in nigerian textiles um so what yeah. what stories are you trying to tell through Unko? first of all we're trying to tell a positive story of africa because africa has such a bad rap outside of africa you know and even inside africa because we're fed all these stories about it's all war and it's famine and it's poverty. And it's not actually. There's a lot of amazing, creative, interesting stories if you, if you dig deep into the culture and the tradition. So I'm just trying to share those positive stories about Africa through my work. The, the process of inventing a new textile, like what does that look yeah. like? How long did it take? What did that process kind of feel like for you as a, a creative and a designer? You know, somehow it, it was a very, it was kind of a very easy process for because the, the, the minute I felt, I, I didn't, um, how shall I put it? I just sort of had all these scraps around me and it was like, what do you do with these other than patchwork? And somehow it, it sort of just came, the first time I did it was how I did it. The only difference is that I sort of at the, the first time I made the strips too thin. So by the time I sewed them all together, they sort of pulled apart. So, <laughs> so I had to, I learned how to find this fabric wouldn't disintegrate. So it was actually really quite easy. And then going on from there, I, my, my mind is always working. So I'm always thinking, okay, what can I do next? What can I do? How can I, and these things, they just sort of just happen organically going forward though, we are trying to do all, a lot more with technology. You know, it's like fusing bits of fiber together. It's about what we can do with our dyes. How do we spin cotton? So many things that we do by, by hand, which I think 
would be better or more people could do them if we introduce technology. And I just feel that for these handicrafts to survive, they have to live in a generation. And to live in the generation, well, this generation is tech savvy. They, they, you know, they, they want to explore and do things differently. One of the things that you said, actually, that's really interesting is kind of for something to live on, it needs to live in yeah. a generation and you, it has to yeah. basically adapt to that generation. It made me think of, so I've been recently wa- watching Treat Food Asia on Netflix okay. and they, okay. there was an episode where basically the daughter of a family who had been making a specific type of um, food all by hand um, yes. went away, comes back and says, actually, if we want to preserve this, like you're struggling right now and I think that yeah. we, need to, we need to integrate technology into this process. In a way, there's always like a bit of tension because it's like, yeah, but it doesn't feel the same, um, yes. even though the results and the like the quality is kind of similar. How do you find that people are responding or, or people will respond to that introduction of, of technology to maybe not necessarily replace, but to enhance um, things that were done by hand? Talking about the whole thing, living in a generation, most of these handicrafts are in the villages. So you have to go into some village and find a community of women that weave. So what we're, what I'm trying to do is just bring it out. So it's in our studios, it's in the city. Anyone can learn it and everyone can learn it. And because most of the practitioners are the last, the children, I'm trying to capture the children's attention. Because when I talk to them, they're like, oh, they don't think they can make any money. And I'm like, are you crazy? Of course you can. So what if we maybe could make some kind of machine that can spin cotton? So I'll use the cotton, for example. There's a a man that we found in the village. He grows cotton. And when the cotton matures, he sells the cotton balls to a group of women who spin the cotton into yarn and they sell it back to him. And then he uses it to do hand embroidery and he uses it to weave fabric. But this man, Mr. Shekina, he's 90 something years old. Mm. And he's the, his son, who is probably about 30 or so, knows how to do it. But he doesn't really like it. And then the, the, the women who spin the cotton, there are probably about only three left. They say all the others are dead and the children, nobody else knows how to do it. So what we need to do now is like the younger, the younger ones like what the parents are doing, but they just find it too tedious. So it's mm. easy to capture those younger ones and introduce this new way of working. They're all excited and they want to learn it, where the older ones are a little bit hesitant. But it's fine because it's, it's passing down into the new, next generation and they're very interested. So it's, I, I think it's, it's just the right perfect time for all of this so mm. so we're not having too many problems introducing tech what's the most surprising thing that you've learned during this process certain artisans that i've been working with the way they've embraced it i've actually been surprised there's not as much resistance since as i thought there would be and the other thing that i found is most amazing beautiful things that you can make from waste from the things that people throw away you can I'm just like I don't know I'm kind of speechless because I'm looking around here and looking at all this beautiful stuff that we've got in the in the studio like whoa all of this is from waste so I think probably that that's also quite surprising how beautiful waste can turn out to be when it comes to the design process itself what is that what is that approach like 
I don't design first, I design after. So it's like whatever we have, hmm, what can we do with this? Okay, so then we then, and then it, it sort of starts. I mean, I have things that I, shapes and patterns that I've had for a long time. Some, and then sometimes I can adapt them to whatever I have. Other times, most of the time though, it's whatever the waste is that I have is what I design around. So it, it sort of works backwards. So I have the, the raw material first and then the design last. Mm. <laughs> so that's really what I do. So a lot of time we have a lot of one-off pieces. We have a lot of things that we do and just never do them again because we don't have the same fabric or, you know, so that, that's really what the process is like for me. That's an interesting kind of aspect of taking the waste that it's available and being like, okay, what can we do with this? And then also thinking about it from a perspective of what can we do with this that someone will want to wear or buy. Yes, to buy, exactly. Because at the end of the day, we are recycling, we're sustainable, but it's still a business. So you have to make money. Yeah, you have to think about that too. I missed that out. You have to really think about how can you sell it? How can you cost it? If it's If the process is too involved, you know, what do you do? Who's going to buy it? So you have to be very careful about who your customers are. You need to know who they are. You need to know what they will buy using data. What is often the the misconception when it comes to running, when people think about like running a sustainable brand or what were some of the things that you weren't necessarily aware of prior to starting in 2012? You know, the thing is that I, I'm very research oriented. So I, I did a lot of research and, you know, I had two amazing people, people who had gone before me, Stella McCartney and Vivian Westwood. Mm-hmm. They were very instrumental to my, to how I, I got the business together because I really looked at what they were doing. And I mean, at the time, Stella was pretty much the only one. There was hardly anybody else doing sustainable fashion, but she she had a business and she, I, I looked to see how she did it. And she does a lot of, um, they do a lot of material innovation, but at the, the core is beautiful things that people can wear. So she doesn't just make stuff because it's, you know, vegan leather. She, she really thinks about the process. And so it was the same thing for me. I kind of learned on the job because I taught myself, right? Mm. And I used to make clothes for myself. So I was my own market researcher. So I would go out with certain things. And everyone was like, oh my God, I want, I want, I want. And there's some things I would wear and nobody paid me any attention. So I was like, hmm, maybe not that yeah, one. You're like, perhaps um, not this one. <laughs> perhaps not this one. And then when I started docking, when I got stockists, there's something I do. I'm constantly asking for feedback. Sometimes it irritates them, but I'm always like, okay, so does this work? Does it not? Can you this? Can we, you know, I always, always, always ask for feedback. There are certain items that fly, like just fly. So I'm like, okay, people like things, this sort of style and this kind of colors. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's about constant feedback. Again, it's data, you know, you need mm. to know what people want. You need to you can be your own market research if you if you know how to sew and even if you don't you can still wear you know make your samples and wear them see what the reception is how does the fact that you design with waste then affect using that feedback it doesn't affect it 
at all. You know why? Because I have a diffusion or a ready-to-wear range, the essentials, mm. um, which is really waste. It's all the off-cuts, end-of-line fabric that gets sent here in bales and bales. It's all end-of-line. So it, it's, it's not such a problem on working with my ready-to-wear. Now, with the, the, the main line, which is really the artisanal, wonderful things, it, people just like it. There are different tribes, fashion tribes. So for everything you do, there's a tribe that wants what you do. They just need to find your tribe. And I think if you're authentic, the tribe will start to find you and then you can find them, you know, like it works back and forth. But I, I feel that's, that's what it is. It's the authenticity and the creativity. People just, there are people who love that and will gravitate towards me. So I, I think I've been quite blessed, uh, pro probably because I was, I've been at the forefront. So I haven't had to, I mean, people have seen this and just like, oh my God, what is this? Wow, I've never seen this before. And they just gravitate towards me. What is the conversation like with the customer when it comes to like discussing sustainability? Are people asking the question? And if so, what kind of questions are they asking? Initially, when I came back, and I started selling here in Nigeria was like 2015. At the time, people didn't look, it wasn't about sustainability, they just liked the clothes. Mm. And then um, as sustainability became more of a thing, um, people started to, to gravitate more towards it. Like, oh, wow, you mean this is like, this is from, you know, I'm either using our traditional fabrics or traditional processes or you know the, the story is really really African and in Nigeria right now there's this whole we're just sort of loving ourselves a lot so it's like by Nigerian people are so proud to wear it because it's from here so it's not necessarily the conversation isn't necessarily about sustainability but it's more about wow this is our story it comes from here so that's what I that's what I get in Nigeria, in Africa, or in Nigeria, it's just, they just love the fact that someone from here is making clothes that look like they could come from anywhere in the world. People are sort of asking more about the sustainability uh, side of things, simply because it's a word that is all over the place. In terms of, I guess, the pivot, it's like almost like a little, like it's meant to be a smooth sweat segue, but it's just like a hard turn. Um, uh, in terms of some of the opportunities that you see for like circularity and sustainability going forward, what, what are some of the opportunities that you see? What I see is an opportunity for our fashion industry to really like boom, because, you know, if we're using waste, it's a, it's a free resource. Do you know what I mean? So we don't have to import all of this um, polyester threads and funny fabrics from China. We can we can do so much with what we have here because already we've we've imported all this um, secondhand clothing and end of line fabric. They're just piles and piles of fabric, and then the offcuts from the tailors. We, there's a there's an opportunity for us to build a textile industry like nothing anyone has seen anywhere because we have imagine what we have we have the manpower we have all these beautiful traditional craft skills and we have this waste that is just there costs nothing really 
Mm -hmm. you know, so I think that our textile industry could be something to be reckoned with. If, you know, if only we could sort of get ourselves together, if, much as I hate to say it, if, you know, the insecurity and instability is, is just, you know, it, it really annoys me because I'm like, this is such a wasted opportunity. What are we fighting for when there's so much, I mean, it's, the whole place is beautiful. The people are beautiful, so talented. What a waste, you know? So the opportunity, I see it, but I don't know if we will be able to actualize it. I pray that we do, but yeah, but that's, that's what I feel about, about the whole thing. Yeah, and it feels, I think it feels very familiar um, to me as in having obviously been Nigerian and having, often having those conversations, it's like almost every single time you gather with Nigerians, it's always like a, oh my gosh, there's so much opportunity, but like so many challenges that are kind of preventing those from happening. So I guess in line with that, what are some of the challenges that need to be kind of overcome? Um, I guess maybe from a Nigerian perspective, uh, but then also beyond that as well. Well, if we're talking from a Nigerian perspective, like I've said, you know, the insecurity and instability, um, it prevents us from, or rather, I think it's sort of, I think it has happened because the governments, the leaders never stop to think of our growing population and what could we do with it. Now, I mean, like the manpower is immense. The, People here are so resourceful and so talented. I mean, like if we had, you know, schools teaching children creativity from <clears throat> when they were when they're very young, because creativity, if you if you have a creative mind, you can solve problems. And if you can solve problems on a small scale, why can't you solve them on a big scale? You know? So we wouldn't be wasting our time fighting over things that really don't matter. There would be more people sort of invested in the crafts, in I, it makes me so emotional. Sometimes I just cry because I'm like, what, what, what is this? So, so that's one of the challenges that we have this huge, massive population of young people that have nothing to do. And nobody tried, nobody thought ahead and felt like, okay, you know what? This is, this is an opportunity. It's something that we need to harness. So there's that. Then we have our infrastructure, you know, the problems with the power, problems with the bad roads. So there's certain places you can't go to, even if you want to, you can't. And I think also the, the one of the other challenges I feel is the fact that this tribal tribalistic thing that goes on, oh, you're from here, so we can't work with you. It is nonsense, really, because we're all people at the end of the day. And, you know, again, you just spend all your time fighting these silly battles when the rest of the world is developing and leaving you behind. So those are the, for me, those are the challenges that we have here, challenges that I wish didn't exist. There's also people's mindsets. And I think it's, again, it's because of the way the society has developed. They can't see beyond their noses, like such short-term thinking. Whereas there's, the, look at China, you think of their long-term plans. So even if one president isn't there, another one comes and takes up the mantle and just continues and they develop the whole country, the whole system. And that, that for me is a major bugbear. Beyond Nigeria, the challenges are that a lot of people don't believe in, they don't believe in people and planet, they only believe in profit. So no matter how we, we try, like some of the big fashion companies, I'm not gonna mention any names, they greenwash, so they, they 
put all these tags of sustainable this and sustainable that, but but they're still producing loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff. How can you be, be sustainable if you're producing so much stuff that nobody wears? You know, it's crazy. So <laughs> I don't want to go off on uh, my, my crazy rant, but I think those challenges, like people really have to think about each other and not just themselves. It's a it's a big problem the world over. For me, I just I just put blinkers on and just keep going until I can't. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. You know, like I always tell them, I'm not leaving and I'm not stopping unless, yeah, I don't even want to say it, but unless I really have to. What gives you that motivation? What keeps you gingered? Do you know what? I think it's because I just love it here. It's the way I want to be. So I'm like, well, I have to try, you know, that, and, you know, if I can try and work and help and just put something back, I also feel like if I'm, if I can do it, other people will look at me and feel like, oh, okay, if she's doing it, then I can. So it's, I, I want to be a source of inspiration as well. That's why I keep doing what I do. How do you feel about the positioning of African voices mm-hmm. in the discussion around sustainable fashion or circular fashion? You know, I, I've always been a bit strange when it comes to that. I feel that we have all we need here. Why do we have to be, if, they're not, if, if people don't want to include me in their conversation, then don't. I have enough of uh, an audience here. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. there's so much we can do. Why do we have to be worried about being um, in, in included and I feel that at some point you have to be included because what you're doing makes sense and it matters it's important so I, I'm not very um, sort of like oh they don't include black people in or African voices in this and that I, I feel that if you do what you do and you just do it well and you're authentic eventually your voice comes out whether people wanted it there or not it will be there so that's my take on it it's one of those things where it's kind of for me I'm, I sit on both sides almost because <laughs> I'm like you yeah there definitely should be inclusion of these voices because from a perspective of a lot of the things that happen in the global north affect the global south mm-hmm. so we talked about kind mm-hmm. of something so like there is no if there is no inclusion of the people who are affected you don't necessarily know the impact you're having. Which is true. And, and actually the voices are beginning to, we are getting included. I see there's, there's a whole lot. A couple of weeks ago, I was a special lecturer at London College of Fashion. And this was something they had never done. They never had anyone from here actually like joining them in the class to talk to them about this thing from another perspective, you know, telling the story from from the African point of view, which was fantastic. And it's beginning to happen because I think because the the world now is is, is so global, it's opened up. People are not, you know, people are scared of what they don't know. Mm. And because they sort of like Africa is just far somewhere, you know, with just poor people, but they're realizing that actually, no, it's not, that there are people here who are like them. And we are, you know, we have our own story. Africa has something that the world needs to see and they're starting to see it. What is your hope for the fashion industry? That, do you know, I don't know. <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. My, well, my hope really is that it just becomes, like people say, it, it, this word inclusive, it becomes more inclusive. It becomes more mindful. It becomes more about people 
it becomes more about the planet and less about profit and exploitation and racism and all those things that are there in the underbelly of the fashion industry. I would just like it to be more transparent and I'd just like it to be a, a, a lot happier, a lot freer, you know, fun. It doesn't have to be so rigid. I just like the fashion space to just be a safe, happy space for everyone. Thank you to Nkwa for taking the time to speak with me. And thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe if you haven't already. And feel free to rate and share the podcast with other people who might be interested. If you want to share feedback with me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Impact Fashion UK. All one word. See you guys next week.